Welcome to the future. You're listening to the Consensus Network. Consensus Network. Consensus Network. With Buck Joffrey. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with Consensus Network. Today, I'd like to start out by reminding you that if you go to consensusnetwork.io, there are some tutorials there to get you started uh, buying cryptocurrency if that is something that you think you might have the itch for. Looking at what happened uh, as of today, at least, today, the, the day I'm actually recording is the day of the Bitcoin Cash uh, hard fork. It actually might be a good time to buy. It's hard to say. It is uh, certainly a dip. I mean, the markets kind of took a big bloodbath, as you know from the Consensus Network weekly cryptocurrency news that we had live the day beforehand, but things have not changed as of today for the most part. It looks pretty ugly. But uh, anyway, uh, it is something to remember that, you know, a lot of times people buy, you know, Warren Buffett says the whole thing, it's, you know, uh, be greedy when people are fearful and be fearful when people are greedy. And right now people are fearful. So if that's the case and you have not uh, dipped your uh, toe into this whole thing yet, it might be worth to consider buying a little bit of Bitcoin. And uh, if you do decide to do that, you can go to consensusnetwork.io, use those links and you get $10 for free Bitcoin. And so do I, if you use those links. So as far as uh, today, I want to you know talk a little bit about uh, Bitcoin and, and how it's evolved. It used to be that Bitcoin uh, was just for the you know the quirky libertarian uh, computer scientists, right? I mean, uh, a lot of these guys are just kind of the, the the people we always kind of thought were like a little weird, but somehow the viruses spread gradually into big money, and and that was something that it never ceases to amaze me how that occurred. Because if you think about it, how does something that's never been advertised, right? It, it didn't come out with the big commercials and talking about, hey, we're launching this Bitcoin, whatever. It was just something that just started. And it started and it was worth nothing. People were sending 20,000 Bitcoin to buy a pizza. And it was, you know, it, it was that kind of thing. It was almost like a hobbyist thing. And the next thing you know, 10 years later, we got, uh, you know, plus or minus $100 billion market cap in Bitcoin alone, uh, and it ushers in an entire new digital currency asset class. Uh, you know, you've got all these other tokens because of the whole blockchain revolution that Bitcoin created. I just think it's absolutely fascinating. Seeing that and being, I would say, relatively late to the game, I mean, I, I really got into cryptocurrencies in general, blockchain, distributed ledger technology about a year and a half ago. Uh, it's particularly interesting uh, for me to see people who've watched it happen uh, in front of them in real time. Michael Moreau is one of those guys who's been involved in Bitcoin trading before the infamous Mt. Gox hack. This was a, at the time, the one of the, uh, it was like the only place where you could trade Bitcoin and there was a lot of Bitcoin on there. Charlie Shrem was, uh, I, I believe, the the guy who owned it. Um Anyway, big uh, big issue that came up with uh, Mt. Gox. There was a ton of uh, uh, Bitcoin that was lost. It was an inflection point for sure. Michael was there before that. He was there after that, and he's watched it mature to where it is uh, today. Um, and so when we come back, he's going to take us on that journey and use that perspective not only on what's going on, what happened in the past, what's going on even today, I mean, with this Bitcoin uh, Bitcoin Cash hard fork, but also the future of institutional interest in cryptocurrency. Uh, make sure to check this uh, interview out. It was a lot of fun, uh, and uh, we'll have it for you right after this. Now, there isn't much more exciting than cryptocurrency, but there are old-fashioned ways of creating wealth outside of Wall Street that have been used by the wealthiest families in the world for generations. And that's what my other podcast is all about. It's called Wealth Formula Podcast. Now, if you've made a lot of money in crypto and don't know what to do next, this show might actually answer a lot of those questions, too. Again, it's Wealth Formula Podcast with me, Buck Joffrey. Welcome back to the show, uh, everyone. Today, my guest is Michael Moreau. Uh, Michael serves as the CEO of Genesis Trading and Genesis Capital. 
He's responsible for the planning and execution of the strategic vision for both firms. And previously, he served as chief operating officer for Genesis Trading and was responsible for uh, overseeing all day-to-day operations. Michael, thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much, Buck. Happy to be here. So I have all these questions for you, but as we are uh, as we are talking, when we today as we're recording, we just saw the floor drop out from Bitcoin, and I actually was just telling you, I just uh, I pulled the trigger and, and contacted uh, Genesis and bought a little bit of Bitcoin right around fifty six hundred, and the next thing you know, I'm looking at it's. 5,300. And uh, we were just talking a little bit about how you and I both uh, were thinking that the floor was probably around 5,900, 6,000. And, you know, what exactly might be going on? So maybe we just kind of jump into that and then we kind of work backwards. To sure, happy to do it. We picked yeah. the uh, heck of a day to do this podcast. Yeah, yeah right, Mark, right, right. Uh, but uh, no, I'm, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, I was with you, as I mentioned to you just before, I thought that um, we had a fairly stable bottom of Bitcoin kind of around the 5,800 to 5,900. I felt like the price was at 6,300 forever. Um, yeah. Certainly in Bitcoin years, it certainly seemed like forever. I think uh, recently what we've seen is a confluence of two different things. One, um, uh, we were just chatting about the Bitcoin Cash hard fork that is scheduled to occur tomorrow, uh, which uh, normally Bitcoin Cash hard forks twice a year as a normal sort of network upgrade maintenance sort of function. It really yeah. isn't contentious. What sort of happened um, is that there's now really two divergent camps uh, between Bitcoin ABC um, and Bitcoin SV or Satoshi's vision. Right. And the the two principles sort of that are spearheading kind of the two groups are at verbal war <laughs> with each other. It is a public split, very ugly and contentious. It's even more tribal than the original Bitcoin Bitcoin Cash split yeah. that happened last year. Yeah. Um, yeah. And they're talking about declaring war on one another and destroying the other token and running 51% attacks on yep. the other chain to effectively kill it. I own more hashing power than you do, et cetera, et cetera. And it's causing a lot of confusion well, in, in the marketplace. And, 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 you know, that's that's the only thing I could come up with as well. And But from my perspective, I was thinking with all this contentiousness and specifically between Roger Ver who's ultimately, I guess, representing the ABC software upgrade and and uh, Craig Wright, who's uh, called himself Satoshi. A lot of people don't think he's Satoshi, but he calls himself uh, Satoshi. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, uh, you know, this contentiousness between them, to me, I thought it was going to be similar to what we saw when there was some confusion around Tether, where there would be some people fleeing into Bitcoin as safe harbor, but help me understand that you know is it is it just because of general confusion in the milieu that you would think that but is or is there something directly correlated with bitcoin structurally that makes it you know have exposure to this bitcoin cash problem so a part of it as you recall when the bitcoin cash split from bitcoin last year we saw a tremendous run up in price in frankly in, in both tokens um, so that when you think about from a traditional investments perspective and company B splits from company A, the stock price and kind of the equity value just simply transfers, right? And it's a sum of the parts argument, but it just kind of splits into two parts. Right. What happened in the Bitcoin, Bitcoin cash split, obviously, is that some of the parts was much greater than what it originally kind of was right. in terms of market value. And I think there were certainly speculators who, and, and to be honest, Bitcoin cash outperformed Bitcoin last week. Sure. Um, who sort of expected that similar kind of run up in Bitcoin cash kind of following the fork. So I think there were certainly folks that were selling Bitcoin to buy Bitcoin cash, kind of expecting that kind of that Bitcoin cash bump post fork yep. Yep. and potentially having two tokens that are kind of much worth much more. Yep. Separately is um, the Roger Ver camp that you kind of mentioned. Um, Roger and, and Bitmain have sort of worked very closely together on Bitcoin ABC. And um, knowing the hashing power for Bitcoin, 
that uh, Bitmain currently provides. Um, there were obviously questions about whether or not, um, in order to continue to support Bitcoin ABC, would Bitmain actually turn some of the hashing power away from Bitcoin and then start mining Bitcoin ABC or start signaling for Bitcoin ABC, taking away potentially a significant portion of hash power away from Bitcoin. There were actually some signs and some questions we saw on the internet that actually did take place today um, yep. that Bitmain did direct some of their hashing power towards a new chain. So some of that affected towards, oh, Bitcoin hashing power is a little bit lower, which means, hey, the difficulty is going to have to come down to sort of affect uh, the change and so the Bitcoin price should potentially be lower. So just for those who are less technically inclined sure. here, explain the correlation between less hashing power main being directed towards Bitcoin and, and some of that getting uh, diverted into Bitcoin Cash and how that would necessarily affect price of Bitcoin? So fundamental analysis in cryptocurrency is really, really difficult, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, obviously, unlike stocks and bonds, where you can sort of try to get your handle on what fundamental value. But one metric that people have found is the amount of electricity and computing power that is necessary to secure the network as a metric of the amount of value that that system is currently supporting, okay? Got it. And people are saying, look, if hashing power goes up, that means the network is getting incrementally more secure. And so that fundamentally the value is continuing to accrue towards that network because the miners believe that spending that much money on electricity is still worth it to secure the chain, that there's economic value and a profit to be made spending all of that electricity and computing power to support the network. If, for some reason, one uh, hash power switches from one network to the other, then you could argue that the book value of the network has now shifted to a different chain. Yeah. Even temporarily, um, that that shift has sort of happened makes marginally the network less secure. Um, yeah. Because yeah. there's fewer electrical and computing power supporting the security of that one network. Right. And so that's one way to kind of think about how switching hashing power from one chain to the other could affect the price of Bitcoin. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, <laughs> it's all kind of convoluted, but I, I think one of the one of the issues, I mean, the, the technical traders are just looking at it as, you know, confusion in the overall environment. And they've been waiting for this moment. You know, I, I had Tyler Jenks. I don't know if you know Tyler. He was on uh, a couple of weeks ago and he's been he actually sort of called this, which was pretty remarkable. Um, but anyway, um, let's go back to kind of your story, because, uh, you know, this all kind of uh, you've seen it all. I mean, you're today you're uh, CEO of Genesis Trading and Genesis Capital. You know, take us a few years back and tell us how you found your way into Bitcoin and digital currencies in the first place. So I'll give um, I'll give all the credit to the founder and CEO of uh, of Digital Currency Group, this Barry Silver. So I met Barry ten years ago. Um, so I was an investment banker growing up um, in early in my career, um, straight out of undergrad. I was at Citigroup for seven and a half years, um, and then I met Barry in two thousand eight when he was running a company called Second Market. Mm -hmm. um, and Second Market was a broker-dealer that made a market, a marketplace for e-liquid assets, um, off-the-run things that typically, typically didn't trade on an exchange or had never been a secondary market existed for that type of asset before. Um, obviously, the financial crisis happened right in 2008, 2009, as I was kind of meeting Barry. And Barry's always kind of had a very sort of bearish view of the world. Um, that things were mispriced, that risks weren't properly taken into account. And he personally discovered Bitcoin in 2011. Now, he'll tell you personally that it took him about six to nine months for him to go from skeptic to convert to full-blown evangelist that he is today. <laughs> but yeah. um, 2012, just as he was starting to kind of get convinced and become an evangelist, he'd come to the office and he wouldn't stop talking about it, frankly. Um, and so, you know, it was one of these things where it's like, all right, Barry, what the heck is Bitcoin? What do you keep kind of going on about? This was probably mid-2012. Um, and so we said, all right, let's take a look at it. It was obviously really immature, really illiquid asset class at the time. Um, if you imagine what it is right now, you know, we're going back six years. Um, imagine the immaturity, sort of a, a nascency of the asset class kind of back then. And then we said, all right, let's try to make a market. Let's make a business out of allowing high net worth and institutional investors 
to get exposure to, to Bitcoin. And the price of Bitcoin was $70, $80 at the time. Um, and then we full-blown launched our desk in, uh, in March and April of 2013. And that was Genesis Trading. Uh, back then, right. And, and so, and that was 2013, very early, you know, very early in, 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 for most people. Who were your customers in 2013? What do they look like? So initially, um, the buyers were going to be um, folks who sort of understood the, the potential for binary outcome, where it could have been a lot of money or it could have gone to zero. That risk return profile is not typically your East Coast investor um, who's looking for 7-8% returns in the equity market and somewhat of a premium over treasuries in the fixed income market, right? Um, so our initial customers were the Silicon Valley VCs who made bets with that risk return profile all day long, right? That's the VC model of, hey, 90% of your portfolio could go to zero, but it's okay because you'll break even on some, hit a home run on others, and then you have an IRR of 25%. So early on, it was really kind of the high net worth guys the, uh, of Silicon Valley who really kind of get invested. The sellers were the early adopters. But yeah. the people that were buying Bitcoin, frankly, um, you know, as second market was kind of getting started. Because certainly the, the trading desk is open to accredited investors, but individuals were not a big part of that initial market for you guys in particular. I mean, you were seeing primarily venture rather than individual high net worth individuals. No, it was it, was, it, was, it wasn't VC funds. It was the v, it was the general it was partners, the guys. Okay, the got it. Got firms it. that were doing the investing. Yeah. Even back then, it was really difficult to kind of fit it into an existing fund mandate. Yeah. Um, they were only allowed to invest in equities, for instance. Cryptocurrency didn't kind of fit neatly into that bucket. So at what point did you start seeing the actual institutional money start coming in and maybe starting to, you know, become, uh, you know, increasingly prevalent? And, and, and how did that, you know, how did that kind of all come about? As, as I think I, I'll highlight kind of two things, and this is kind of relatively early on still. Yeah. Um, 2014, Mt. Gox happened. Right. In early 2014. I thought that was it for Bitcoin. I thought, hey, like if this might be the death knell, the poor headline risk, was it hacking outside, inside job, the price of Bitcoin potentially tank? Obviously, because the price had hit 1200, 1300, sort of in the November, December of 2013, right? So just only a couple of months removed, uh, Mt. Gox ultimately kind of happens. But the fact is, it didn't. So I think the resiliency of the market actually made institutional investors ultimately kind of take notice. And two, when the U.S. Marshals started auctioning off some of those Bitcoins, I think that was another sign that, hey, wait a minute, maybe the federal government isn't going to shut this down. Yeah. Um, that maybe Bitcoin itself isn't inherently illegal. And if the federal government's going to, if they confiscated tons and tons of cocaine, they're not going to auction that off, right, as contraband. Yeah. So yeah. it was a separate category that, yes, there were concerns about money laundering and fraud, but in effect, it really wasn't inherent kind of in Bitcoin. Those two things, when things like that happen, one, it didn't go away, and two, the government is actually helping to sponsor some of these transactions, slowly let the uh, institutional investors say, hey, at least I should pay attention to it. But to your question, it was probably 2015, 2016 was really kind of the first time that institutions started to at least take this market seriously. Right, right. And then in terms of, of you know, the uh, interest as it sort of developed over the years, I think I read somewhere that, you know, now, you know, fairly recently, that balance of institutional versus high net worth individuals, now you're, now you're way more institutional money than you are uh, the high net worth guys. Mm -hmm. when, did, when did that balance sort of shift in the other direction completely? Uh, it was last year. Last year, okay. 2017, yeah. U ultimately, right? High net worth guys control their own money. Sure. So him or her can make their own investment decisions. Institutions, there's obviously a lot of support staff, audit and legal and compliance. Everyone needs to kind of sign off. So it's a much longer sales cycle and process. Yeah. But when they get involved, they can write bigger checks. Yeah. And so once the price obviously started to move significantly last year, which obviously started with Ether, it wasn't Bitcoin that kind of started the big price run last year. 
Um, I think when the price started going kind of crazy, I think institutions really kind of jumped in it in, in, in with both feet at that point. So let's talk about Genesis Trading in particular. It is an over-the-counter uh, exchange. For people who don't know exactly what that means, how is that different from, say, a Gemini or Coinbase Plus, somewhere where you might, uh, most people might be, you know, buying digital assets? Sure. So for them, so um, technically, we're not an exchange. So we are your counterparty on every single one. There isn't necessarily a seller or buyer on the other side of your trade. It's Genesis. So right. when you buy Bitcoin from, from us, it's actually Genesis is, is the selling counterparty, um, obviously, as opposed to a seller on Coinbase or a seller on Gemini. Um, we're, we're your counterparty. Secondly, we only sort of cater to the institutional high net worth clients. So we have right. a minimum trade size of 75000 um, But the biggest difference is that it, everything is post-trade settled. All of the exchanges, you have to pre-fund either in dollars or in crypto, you have to have a balance there before you're able to trade. Um, we operate a much more institutional where we agree to a transaction first, and then we exchange the crypto and the fiat as part of the settlement. Admitted, I've used, uh, I've used Gemini on the buy side. I've never used it to sell. So it, when you're selling, how, how does that work on this kind of platform? Do you, do you, you, know, you basically offer, you, know, you, you send in your Bitcoin first and then... How, how, how does that on work? Gemini? Uh, no, on, 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 on Genesis. Yeah, on Genesis. I, like I've used Genesis to buy before, yes. but I, I've actually not sold. You know, and so, so I'm curious how it works. Same exact process, yeah. but the reverse. Yeah. You would come to us and say, hey, uh, Genesis, I want to sell 100 Bitcoins. Yeah. yeah. We would quote you a price. Got it. And if the price is good, great. We send you a Bitcoin address that belongs to us. Got it. You send us the Bitcoins and then we wire the U.S. dollar proceeds to whatever bank account you specify. Yeah. I mean, you obviously have to have quite a bit of liquidity, you know, to make sure that you're, you know, you're able to you know, be uh, be available for buyers and mm -hmm. sellers. Is that pr the primary determinant of the because it's not just Bitcoin that you're selling. You have Bitcoin, Bitcoin cash, although it's probably mm -hmm. frozen today, I'm imagining. Ethereum, uh, and a few other things. Is, is there any other determinants other than in liquidity? So mostly the, as far as tokens or the price, Buck? Well, the, the, the tokens in terms of what you're offering on the platform uh, to, for, for, for purchase. So the number one determinant is demand. Okay. Do we have enough institutions and high net worth investors requesting a particular token? So it's much more of a reverse inquiry process for us kind of than anything else is if we see enough demand to support the token, we will. Got it. Got it. And you mentioned the minimum purchases are uh, $75,000. So again, uh, just letting people know, because what, what are the advantages of using, you know, even for the high net worth people or the institutional, why, you know, why is it an advantage to use an over-the-counter trading mechanism uh, rather than rather than these exchanges. So number one thing is we're an SEC and FINRA registered broker dealer. So we are regulated by the SEC in what we do, um, unlike any of the exchanges. None of the exchanges are obviously true exchanges, nor are they regulated by the SEC. So um, we're on a different kind of regulatory um, framework as we kind of conduct our business. Secondly, um, we believe that we offer better price execution. Um, exchange liquidity can be sparse, especially as you look to do larger transactions, is that the exchange slippage, because the order books aren't very deep, if you wanted to buy 100000 half a million dollars, a million dollars worth of Bitcoin, you eat up a lot of orders on the order book to sort of be able to fill that order. So we're much tighter, closer to spot price for larger transactions than you would get executed on the exchanges. Yeah, so many, so in other words, your your own purchase is not going to drive up the price. Correct. Yeah, and and nor, nor your sales would it, would it crush the price. And it's a spot trade versus a commission, right? So, Correct. so in other words, you you mark it up by what you know a, a couple dollars. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, and So, as a general rule, does that end up being less expensive than say a, a Coinbase, or is it about the same, or? No, I think that if you were to do a transaction sort of $75,000 or higher, yeah. um, I would argue that Genesis would be an all-in less, uh, you know, more uh, inexpensive. Got it. Um, than uh, executed on the exchanges. Talk a little bit about what Genesis Capital does and um, when that started. And, and is that product also 
you know, who is that product for, et cetera? So Genesis Capital, we launched in March of this year. Um, so it's a relatively newer business and it is separate, um, a legal entity than Genesis Trading. However, um, the, obviously the products are very complementary. It is a lending platform. We, are, we offer spot borrow on cryptocurrencies. Um, and what, what obviously with the introduction of the CME product, the futures and the CBOE product late last year, early this year, it's really kind of given an, uh, an investors an opportunity to take the other side of the market. Yeah. In a declining price environment, could you sell futures? Could you uh, could you short Bitcoin? Yeah. Um, so that hey, if you think the price is going down, it will. What Genesis Capital offers is exactly that spot borrow. We will lend you Bitcoin. We'll lend you Ethereum or Litecoin um, if you want to take advantage of a, a potential short term price dip. Or you're just a crypto bear in general, and you think this market's going to go to zero, and feel like shorting it down to zero. We give you the opportunity and the mechanism to do that. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's something that's just part of the whole maturity of this market as as it continues to develop. It used to be the case, I guess. Basically, you can only go long, right? So you can't mm -hmm. really have a market that's sophisticated if you can only go long. I'd love to get your thoughts on some of the other some other current issues in crypto kind of with your perspective that you've had over the years. Stable coins. What what what's the role of these things in the future? You keep seeing like, you know, you get the Gemini coin, you have the Coinbase comes up with its own um I mean, what what first of all, what what do you see the role of these and, you know, do you see there being multiple coins in the future or is one of these going to win or what? Um, so there's obviously several buckets of stablecoin. Um, some of the ones you just sort of mentioned, the Gemini coin, the Circle has a coin, uh, there's TrueUSD, there's obviously kind of the legacy Tether product. Those are what I call sort of collateralized products. Right. There'll be a dollar sort of backing every dollar kind of stablecoin out there. And right now, it's most useful for arbitrage, taking advantage of uh, temporary price differences on various markets and be able to move the fiat side of the equation much more quicker than going through the bank account. Then there's the more algorithmic approaches, sort of a basis and MakerDAO. Um, there's actually no collateral kind of backing it, but they have a special algorithm that sort of balances out the supply and demand to always kind of keep the price at a dollar. Um, those to me are much more experimental frankly yeah um and um it's incredibly interesting intellectually um to see how they work but many of these haven't really launched yet um and what i always tell people is that i would probably need 18 to 24 months of data um before i say okay those algorithms kind of seem to be working because if these algos don't work um then you potentially have a death spiral scenario right, right. Uh, where it's unable to kind of maintain that peg to the dollar Right. Um, uh, there's about 30 of them projects I feel like currently out there. Uh, long term, I obviously don't want to make a market in 30 different things that are supposed to be worth a dollar. Um, I do think there will be winners in each category. Um, and uh, but longer term, um, the use case has to be much bigger um, than just arbing in Bitcoin exchanges. Um, there are projects out there that haven't been announced that is looking to disrupt the ACH market, for example. If you can make intrabank transfers within the country much smoother, easier via stablecoin, a dollar in, a dollar out with instant settlement in between. Right. I um, mean, I think that is a disrupting to the uh, to the domestic transfer market, um, which I think would be really, really interesting as a potential payment mechanism. Presumably, those would be more likely, you know, with some of the, you know, I guess with Gemini's coin in particular, it's actually FDIC uh, insured. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm guessing that that's your, that's your take as well, that probably those more regulated coins are the ones that would probably prevail in, in real bank transfers and that sort of thing. I, I, I certainly see a lot more, um, credibility, at least certainly initially with the collateralized dollar for dollar kind of back regulated tokens, as opposed to the unregulated, the crazy scenario I have in my head is that if it really kind of takes off, this is stablecoin thing takes off and anyone around the world can have access to the US dollar, yeah. okay? Um, I could potentially see this scenario where the demand for the dollar gets even stronger. Yeah. And demand for, for your fiat currency in your local country just weakens, where you sell your local currency and buy the stablecoin. 
right? Yeah. Because it's a lot more kind of easily accessible. And then you see the potential to say, hey, strengthening dollar. That already seems to be a problem today in the U.S. economy. Could that potentially be even marginally exacerbated by a stable coin? Yeah. It's sort of a crazy idea. And what the Fed might do in that scenario um, is, is a possibility for them to potentially deal with if it really becomes a successful product. Well, and, 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 and to that point, I think Christine Lagarde from the IMF uh, just made a comment about, you know, uh, suggesting that central banks ought to consider, uh, you know, digital assets uh, as part of, you know, the way they function, which I, <laughs> which I found absolutely uh, shocking considering sort of the, you know, the, the rhetoric that, that's come out in that direction. You know, there, there seems to be two camps. It yeah. clearly is one people who's no, never. And then there's certainly people who are more open to the idea. But I think everyone kind of agree that the world is just simply moving in a digitized direction, tokenized direction. Um, I know I know a lot of friends that don't carry any cash in their pockets. Yeah. Um, and so the, the digitization of everything else is sort of ultimately kind of happening. And the world is kind of becoming more, you know, more and more borderless, frankly. Um, and so I think the idea of having some allocation of digital assets start to make a lot of sense. What I find ironic about this sometimes uh, is the the fact that this thing, um, you know, with with Bitcoin in particular, seemed to start out as a, you know, with quirky libertarian computer scientists, no advertising. Next thing you know, it's got a hundred billion dollar uh, market capitalization. Uh, it's like viral, right? Now the systems that regulate finances and 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 equities and all this stuff just doesn't seem to kind of fit what's going on right now. And it's in, in many ways, what it's doing uh, from my perspective is, is strangulating a lot of the advancement of, you know, you've got these projects, these great blockchain projects that are finding it very difficult, you know, to, to develop in the U S and they're moving offshore. Mm-hmm. Um, it's making it difficult for investors to participate in some of those projects I can't imagine that the U.S. is going to stand by and let the rest of the world run with this. What is your take on that? You're, you've obviously got a much uh, you know, closer ground view of what's going on. Mm-hmm. So uh, about a month ago, I was invited to Washington, D.C. to kind of help participate in the Capitol Hill Roundtable, um, held by a few members of Congress who sort of wanted to hear from the industry what the concerns are about current regulation and guidance regarding digital currencies, and particularly sort of the ICO type of projects. Um, And the industry was in absolute uniform um, in saying, hey, we were trying to abide by the rules. We want to be compliant. We want to do this the legal way. We just don't know because everything's really sort of a gray area, Right. right? Right. And everyone kind of raised about the fact that, hey, you know, job creation, capital formation is fleeing the U.S. Um, simply because there seems to be jurisdictions that are a lot more kind of friendly towards some of these newer kind of developments. Um, ultimately, um, you know, I don't believe the U.S. will be first um, to sort of adopt a lot of these rules and kind of regulations. Although the SEC recently said some plain language guidance will come out regarding ICOs, and I'm sure that's helpful. Um, but I also um, don't envy the regulators. No, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, because this just doesn't fit neatly, like you said, into any existing bucket. Um, it's not a security, so does the SEC have an oversight on it? CFTC doesn't touch spot trading of commodities um, unless there's kind of fraud involved, right? And so unless Congress kind of mandates that the powers of either the SEC or CFTC extend over cryptocurrency spot trading, or a brand new government body simply gets created to kind of deal with this, um, in the absence of that, you're trying to fit square pegs into round holes, frankly, um, which kind of leads to a lot of the confusion. The other issue that I think is very challenging, and and, and I'm curious to see what happens with it, is that there are there are certain things that it would be virtually impossible to regulate. I mean, so recently, um, you know, I think you, you, I'm sure you saw this a couple of days ago. There was a uh, the SEC filed, or at least announced filing a, that they had filed a suit against um, the founder of Ether Delta, a, mm-hmm. a decentralized exchange. The idea being that you know, just for people who don't know, a decentralized exchange is is 
is effectively a smart contract. So you don't have to have central, you know, you don't, you don't have to have people there who are controlling it behind the scenes. It's a contract. So people are exchanging over this. But their take was, if you create the contract, that does not absolve you of responsibility. So I get that. But the real question to me comes when there's an anonymous person who creates a decentralized exchange. Then who do you go after? How do you regulate it? Et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it, what, do you, what do you think of some of those issues? I don't think there's any question that you're going to run into exactly just that, right? right. Um, initially, there are going to be people and companies that want to take credit for creating a decentralized exchange, especially if it becomes wildly popular. Um, but I think you then painting a big red a bullseye target on yourself to say, hey, I'm the person ultimately kind of responsible for having created this thing, even if it is no longer in my control um, because it's kind of running decentrally. Um, I think the uh, the Ether Delta um, announcement yesterday certainly makes sense. You can run fast and break things as long as you're not breaking securities laws, right? Right. right. Um, but you know, at the same time, um, it does it does kind of put the decentralized exchange project um, at least uh, took a step back, certainly in the United States. Absolutely. Now, let me ask you this, and and this is kind of apropos of the fact that the markets are crashing uh, today. I mean, I'd written these questions out yesterday before it all happened. <laughs> and, and, and yesterday, while Bitcoin was trading about 15%, per, 15% higher than it is today, I was thinking to myself that there's, I, th- I heard an estimate that there was only about 3 million circulating Bitcoin, you know, that most of it was being held in large, you know, most of it was people just holding Bitcoin, you know, a lot of it's been lost. There's never going to be over 21 million produced. Knowing that, you would think that prices uh, going down now and and stable, they they were really stable for a while. But with all these announcements, with the Intercontinental Exchange and uh, launching Bakht in, in, I think, December 12th, it's not theoretical anymore. Fidelity getting involved. You get the CBOE uh, products now you've got the ones that are on the table with the ETFs. I mean, considering that three million in circulation, how can that not go up? I mean, how can I mean? Are you? Th- <laughs> I'm curious what your take is. I mean, you're you're you at the front row on this. So some of it is a function of exhaustion on news, right? Yeah. Um, this is a really really fast news cycle. Everyone's making announcements every single day. And there's certainly a matter of like news fatigue out. There. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm curious that once the back product actually starts operating next month, um, how much traction it gets. Um, once the Fidelity product opens up in January, February of next year, um, I'm, I'm curious to see how much traction that a product ultimately gets. Until there's really something to do, just the fact that you're going to do something no longer really moves the market. Yeah. Um, until there's really action involved. And on the CME and the CBOE side, those are cash settled, right? And so, yes, there may be some hedging that kind of happens in the background, but the buying and selling of it really kind of doesn't really effectively do anything if there's ways to kind of synthetically hedge your, your Bitcoin kind of price exposure. So it's really the physical stuff, um, the physically settled, uh, where you actually have to have the underlying Bitcoin to kind of move and sell, um, is going to be ultimately the, the mover of value. But I really think, I still believe this, um, even though there's a lot of focus on institutions, and rightly so, they can write massive checks. This market is still 90% retail. Yeah. Um, and so unless you can get the retail guys to, to come back, um, and some of them are still smarting um, from some of the trading losses that they took as a result of kind of buying exactly a year ago. Right. Um, and some of them tend to have longer memories. Um, so until we can get that retail market to come back in force, I guarantee you the institutions will be moving. I guarantee you that we'd be selling a lot more Bitcoins at 15,000 than we are at five, which makes people inherently like terrible investors. Like, why would you buy at 3x the price instead of kind of buying, you know, buy one, get two free price that you may be getting today? But psychologically, um, I get, I'm sure we'll be doing a lot more business at 15K than here we are. Yeah. But then the retail guys right now have got to be thinking if we're going to get in, we got to get in soon. 
I would hope so. Uh, but momentum swings both ways, right? Momentum really kind of drove the fourth quarter of last year and momentum drove today, frankly. Right. Um, so, you know, it's, uh, it, it, it swings both ways violently in this market. Yeah. Michael, it's uh, been great talking to you. Where can we learn more about your businesses and, and where you, what you're up to? So uh, we have our website at genesistrading.com um, for over-the-counter trading businesses. And anybody interested in our lending business, um, our website is gencap.co on the Genesis Capital side of the business for, for wanting to learn. Uh, but of course, feel free to reach out to me uh, via email or on LinkedIn. I'm happy to connect and kind of chat about our services anytime. Fantastic. Michael, thanks for being on Consensus Network. Uh, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. We'll be right back. Want to buy Bitcoin with your IRA? Don't waste your time on expensive IRA custodians. A strategy called a QRP is as easy as writing a check. Find out how. Text 44222 and type QRP book. That's one word. And get a free book that explains everything. Again, that's 44222 QRP book. One word. It's the easiest way to make Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies part of your retirement. Welcome back to the show, everyone. I uh, That was a lot of fun for me to talk to Michael, and it was uh, kind of a funny thing. I mean, he's uh, out there in uh, one of the big digital currency, I guess, platforms where you can buy and sell this stuff, and, and the stuff's crashing. So it was nice of him to to make time for uh, for us and, and, and shed some of his opinions and, and views on, on on this whole market. I want to start before we get into questions with a little bit of reflection on this whole thing so far. And like I said, I'm recording this actually, um, you know, during this whole crazy uh, hard fork mess and Bitcoin has, you know, been all the way down to 52 something um, on Coinbase and then came back up. And I think it's sitting somewhere in the mid 5000s right now. And there is some perspective, I think, that's worth uh, talking about. You know, the the guys in 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 who've been in in Bitcoin and cryptocurrency for a long time uh, look at this and say, "Well, gosh, it's just par for the course, right?" We've seen, shoot, we've seen ninety percent ninety percent lows from highs, and that's happened multiple times. So why does it surprise you? I mean, we're not at ninety percent yet. If the high was twenty thousand, you know, we. We still have a we still have a ways to go before we're ninety percent down from that. But you know, I I think the difference here that uh, for me is a little bit of a concern, and certainly not you know something that's going to make me uh, forget about this whole thing and say it's not going to work. But one of the concerns that I have, there is a tremendous uh, amount of influence from a few, and. A few miners, and in particular, you know, um, Bitmain, and you know the 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 mining the mining power that is behind uh, behind uh, uh, fake Satoshi, uh, Mr. Wright, and he is obviously kind of bananas, and um, the 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 contentiousness of this battle. And the control he seems to have over the price of Bitcoin. Uh, and cryptocurrencies is is a little alarming to me, and and I bring this up because you know, listen. At the end of the day, you know, you've got institutional money coming into this, and that's what we're really counting on, bringing the money up, uh, bring bringing the price up. And I I, I think over the long term, I still believe that's going to happen. But in the short term, I think we look at a situation like this, and if I'm an in, in, institutional investor, if I'm managing people's money, I look at this and I start thinking. Well, gosh, is this really decentralized? Uh, you know, Bitcoin in particular, we thought the big one of the big things here was it was decentralized, but it seems like there is so much power that just a few people have, and then it takes one crazy guy like Craig Wright to really, really, you know, create tremendous amount of havoc. And I think the net effect of that is in the short term. <laughs> And uh, others may argue differently, but I think that this is uh, this is probably going to affect when the uh, the first Bitcoin ETF gets approved. I mean, I just can't imagine looking at the shenanigans going on here uh, with the miners, et cetera, and the uh, SEC 
saying that that they feel that Bitcoin is not uh, something that can be easily manipulated because as we are seeing in real time, it really is. You've got hashing power, you got you know centralization. You've got a few characters, you know Craig Wright on one side. Uh, you've got the miners on the other side, and you know it it's creating a mess. And I I think that is, is something that the SEC is going to have is going to look at very carefully. And I don't think it's going to be happy about that. And uh, I think it's going to delay any kind of ETF. That said, we still have Bach coming up December twelfth. That's a foregone conclusion. We have Fidelity's interest. I think part of the problem here is we have um, kinks to work out in this area. And um, Bitcoin might not be quite ready for prime time. I mean, I think that's what we're seeing. By the way, if you're wondering why I'm, I'm lumping Bitcoin into this uh, when the war is really between Bitcoin Cash and um, the, 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 different, the different players in Bitcoin Cash, it's because the Bitcoin price is getting hammered. And it's getting hammered because of all of these, you know, concerns about the instability and, and you know, mining power and, uh, uh, and hash rates and all that. And, 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 and so, so it does get affected, even though it doesn't directly involve Bitcoin. And then you have Craig Wright saying that, um, you know, he's going to take down Bitcoin and that there is, there are some serious errors in Bitcoin and that's creating a lot of FUD. And when you have a guy that that's that powerful, affecting hundreds of millions and billions of dollars it's not good and and that's something that uh, the cryptocurrency community is going to have to deal with one way or another uh, for this thing to really take off now with that let me let me get to some questions uh, we only have a, a couple questions today um, first one is from RJ he says um, I noticed that some random tokens showed up on my wallet I did some research and found out uh, that it was airdropped. How does that uh, airdrop thing work? Well, basically, here's how it works. So an airdrop is a way uh, for for a new project. You know, let, let, let's say I remember I got some Tron tokens uh, on an exchange one time as an airdrop, and I didn't know how I got them. But the idea is that they create these projects and they create, you know, uh, the, uh, you know, these uh, blockchains or they're going to create blockchains, I should say, and they want people to know about them. And so one of the ways, the best way is for people to literally all of a sudden own the stuff. If they own the stuff, they'll look at it, they'll try it, they'll see what they can do with it, they'll pay attention to it. So I would say... Um, the way to see airdrop is it's just a marketing uh, mechanism by which that new projects use in order to um, in order to sort of advertise their project. Now, the other the other time you may see that is with uh, some kind of a hard fork is where we saw in the case of Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash a year ago, the people who ended up uh People that split happened, resulting in two coins, and people who own Bitcoin got an equal amount of Bitcoin cash, and so that's that's another way you could magically end up with uh, you know new coins in your uh, new tokens in your wallet. So those are really, I think, the the two primary ways. Um, uh, I think that answers your question. Uh, the next question is from Greg uh, Fielder. I have a question about cryptocurrency, uh, and feel free to use it on your podcast. I noticed a lot of tokens like EOS and ION move from the Ethereum blockchain to make their own network. It seems like it seems to be the pattern of tokens using the ETH platform as a stepping stone. Why the Ethereum blockchain specifically? It's a good question, and and, and I, I think historically, if you look at what Ethereum provides, it was the really the first uh, first project, the first blockchain that allowed for um, allowed for smart contracts. So essentially, what you're doing when you a lot of projects use the they get funded by you now they're getting funded by Ethereum, and then what they'll do is they will. Even though their own blockchain is not ready to go, it's not ready for prime time. They will uh, they will give out tokens as sort of I guess uh, holding places, right? It's like an IOU. And those tokens uh, will start. Maybe they can start accumulating value. You saw the, this in the case of EOS, for example, as you mentioned, uh, and 
but they're not necessarily functional in any sort of way because EOS's, uh, EOS, the EOS token that was represented by uh, an ERC-20 token, an ERC-20 token is basically an Ethereum-based token. So EOS initially was, uh, you know, these tokens were out there. Um, they were called EOS, but they were EO, ERC-20 tokens. They were not really functional per se because there was no EOS blockchain, but they were sort of holding places so that when the blockchain actually was developed and launched and the mainnet was live, then those tokens could then be exchanged for uh, uh, for actual native tokens to the EOS blockchain. So the reason Ethereum is used for the most part is because it was really the first uh, smart contract platform out there where you could you know you could do this kind of stuff. So that I think that's the main reason. I mean, you know, could you could you do this with some of the other platforms in the future? Yeah, I don't see why not. You could probably do an you know EOS based uh, token if you're starting a new blockchain or something like that. But they're really you know EOS uh, Ethereum was the platform that really started it all. So that's also the other thing that's important about that. I should point out is that. You know, when people wonder why um, uh, Ethereum in particular got hammered so badly, um, even before Bitcoin did, there was a lot of these new projects that were being funded by Ethereum. For example, I think, uh, uh, I think, I believe EOS raised something like some $4 billion or something like that. And it was all pretty much in EOS. At some point, they got to sell that stuff off. And that's certainly going to drive prices down as well. And I think, uh, I think that's that's of significance too. But again, you're right. Uh, these, um, you know, uh, the nice thing about it, and I kind of like it when I have, you know, ERC20 tokens, because you can put all of those into my Ether wallet and, and then have a private key on your ledger. And it makes it really easy. I kind of wish everything was like that, but it, but uh, once a blockchain actually goes live um, uh, and the mainnet goes live, then you, you have to exchange uh, and some people, when they didn't do that with EOS, they lost their token. You know, they lost their money, and they kind of sucked. But anyway, it was a good question, though. Anyway, that's it for uh, this week on uh, Consensus Network. Uh, I do want to encourage people to definitely uh, check out the tutorials at ConsensusNetwork.io. Um, also, uh, leave me some questions, uh, please. Uh, it would be fantastic to get you more involved, have more things to talk about um, and, and hear from you on a weekly basis. You can go to consensusnetwork.io to do that, or you can uh, you can leave a voicemail there, or you can also email me at consensusnetwork.io. Uh, with that, I will leave you uh, for the week. Uh, thanks for joining me. This is Buck Joffrey with Consensus Network signing off.